Our Father, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that by your spirit that you would reveal yourself to us more fully, Lord, that we would see your power, that we would see your authority, your sovereignty, and that our response, Lord, would be awe, just to be in awe of you and to obey you. Be glorified during this time, Father, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bible with you, we're in Genesis chapter 1, and our study today is going to bring us to a very uh, important, a very, very important text. Our text today is going to help us to consider what the Bible has to say to the modern man who, being as scientifically minded as we tend to be, uh, wants to know how old is the universe, or maybe the question is, does the Bible teach us how old the universe is? Now keep in mind that uh, as we get started here, keep in mind that the two verses that led up to our passage today, the first two verses from the book of Genesis, we, we saw two things, two very important things in those verses. First of all, we saw in verse one, it kind of gave us a summary statement of all of chapter one. It said, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This summarizes everything that we're going to see in chapter one of Genesis. The second thing we saw from verse two was that the earth was formless and void, and that the Spirit of God, remember the word spirit can also be translated as breath, so the Spirit of God, the breath of God was hovering above the waters of the earth. So we know that in verse 2, the earth already existed, but it was formless, void, and it was dark. It's a fact that through the centuries, Theologians, pastors, Christian philosophers, and even scientists who themselves are Christians, all these people have sought to make sense of the first chapter of Genesis and have sometimes come to wildly, wildly different conclusions. There are many throughout the ages, throughout the centuries, who have taught that uh, creation took place in six literal consecutive 24-hour days. Uh, one of the most promise, uh, prominent historical figures who held this view, although he was very undogmatic about it, which I think was probably wise, was John Calvin. And yet there have been many others who were equally prominent throughout history who have denied this view. Uh, the likes of St. Saint, uh, Augustine and Thomas Aquinas at the top of that list and included on that list would be two great theologians from just the previous century, the, the, uh, the 20th century, Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was a fantastic preacher and, uh, and author, and Francis Schaeffer. So before we start talking about the days of creation, and before we start trying to establish an answer to the question of what the six days of creation were, what they entail, what they consisted of, we should start with a very basic understanding that through the ages, scores and scores of very orthodox 
well-meaning theologians have arrived at very different conclusions about the days of the earth. And they all pretty much used the same basic sound method of interpretation in arriving at their positions. So let us be clear about one thing before we begin, and that is that how a person answers this question regarding the age of the universe or regarding the age of the earth does not serve as a litmus test for Orthodox Christianity. Let me say that again. How a person answers this question regarding the age of the universe or of the earth is not a litmus test for Christian orthodoxy. Contrary to what a few uh, certain young earth ministries, young earth creation ministries will tell you, there's one ministry that holds that the universe is about 6,000 years old. That's the young earth creation view. And they argue that anyone who believes otherwise is denying inerrancy and they're compromising all of scripture. And let me just start by saying that is such nonsense. That is such nonsense. We want to avoid placing that much weight on this particular issue or this particular text. In fact, there are a total of six views of creation that are all at least somewhat hermeneutically viable conclusions as to the age of the universe or the earth or or what the days of creation were. First, there's the view that creation occurred over the course of six literal consecutive days. That's how uh, young earth creationists arrive at the conclusion that, there are, that the earth is basically 6,000 years old. Secondly, there's the view that creation occurred over the course of six literal 24-hour days, but that those days were not consecutive. They weren't back-to-back with one another. Third, there's a view that there's a gap between verses 2 and 3 between verses 1 and 2, and then between verses 2 and 3, during which time a massive angelic rebellion took place over the course of who knows how much time, according to those who hold to this view. You may note in your Bible, it may have a little note there that uh, on verse 2, when it says, and the earth was formless and void. Anybody have a note in their Bible that says that you can also translate that word was as became? You can also translate that word as became, formless and void. So forth, there's the view that holds that the days of creation refer to geological ages that are who knows how long, meaning each day represented several thousand or hundred thousand or maybe even millions of years. Fifth, there's a view that the days of creation are purely structural. That is, the way that they're presented isn't there to show you uh, necessarily the literal truth and order of creation, but uh, the days themselves aren't literal. Rather, they are an example of figurative language being used to understand an objectively literal truth. If you ask me, that one is really stretching it hermeneutically. Sixth, there's the view that holds that uh, the days of creation are God's work days and that while they are uh, similar to our days in some sense, they're like an analogy to our days, they're analogous to our days, and they're much, much longer than 24 hours in length. Now we know, if you, if you understand what all these views are, you, you know that they can't all be correct. Because once something is true, anything that is outside of that truth is necessarily false. And while we want to pursue the truth of this matter, we must pursue it with a spirit of grace 
and with a spirit of goodwill toward those who hold views that are different from ours. But at the same time, the one compromise that we cannot make, the one compromise that we must refuse to make is to deny to even the slightest degree that this portion of Scripture is both historically accurate and that it is factual. We do not want to compromise on that, not one iota. God really did speak all of creation into existence, and he did it in a manner that testifies to his unyielding, uncompromising perfection. Our goal is always to understand what God is telling us through his word, and that often involves basic hermeneutics, just asking the basic question, who wrote this? Why did they write it? To whom were they writing? Etc., etc. So as we begin looking at the days of creation, let us understand that there is an underlying theme of complete, unadulterated perfection throughout this chapter. The God who spoke all things that began to exist into being did so not only effortlessly, but he did so perfectly. He made no mistakes. There were no flaws. The three nouns from verse 1, God, heavens, and earth, those are all represented throughout this chapter in multiples of seven. And of course, we know that the number seven uh, is symbolic. It represents God's perfection. The word God appears five times, seven times. Heavens appears three times, seven times. And earth also appears three times, seven times. This first verse of Genesis chapter 1 has seven words in Hebrew. The seventh day is broken down into three sentences, each of which has seven words. The message is, God created perfectly. Perfectly. Verse 2 told us that the earth was formless and void, and immediately following that we see the days of creation. One thing that we don't see or know is how much time took place between verses 2 and 3. We have no idea. We have no idea. We should understand that the days of creation are also, by the way, divided into two sets of three. There are six days of creation, and then on the seventh day, God rested. And the, seven days of, or the, the six days of creation are broken into two sets of three. The first three days of creation will remedy the formlessness of the earth that we saw in verse 2. And the second three will remedy the lifelessness on earth. So for the first three days, God will form the earth And for the second three days, he will fill the earth. And so with that said, let's look at day one. Genesis chapter one, verses three to five, says this. It says, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. What we'll see as we go through the six days of creation is that the six days of creation are all preceded by the words, and God said, and God said, and they will all end with, and there was evening and there was morning, followed by the designating number for the day. We also see that on each day, whatever God makes, he declares to be good until he gets to man, which he proclaims to be very good. God simply speaks. He speaks. He says, let there be light. And that is enough. 
that's sufficient to get the job done. Unlike the mythical pagan gods with whom the Israelites would have been familiar with, who they would have learned about while in slavery in Egypt, the true living God doesn't create by waging war against other mythological pagan gods. That's not how this all got here. It didn't happen because there was some war between the gods. He commands the light to exist, and the light exists. Light exists not because you know God took this chemical and, and, and that chemical and he, he brought them together and, and caused them to work. No, the only tool he uses is his spoken word. Let there be light, and there was light. Now, keep in mind that the Israelites would have just recently come from the deeply pagan religious system of Egypt in which there was a god of light and there was a god of darkness. There were all kinds of gods, but there was a god of light and there was a god of darkness. The pagan gods aren't even mentioned here. He, he doesn't even have to refute their existence he just doesn't even mention them. They, 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 they would have been conspicuous by their absence, so to speak. Of course, such gods don't even really exist. They're mythological. But it's almost as if Moses is saying here, gods of light and darkness, what are you even talking about? What gods of light and darkness? There is only Elohim. There is only the true living God. There is no God other than Him. The first day of creation, God creating light, leaves a lot of people kind of confused and doubting the text. They'll say something like, wait a minute, you're saying that there's a day here, but there's no sun. How, how can you have a day uh, when, when the sun doesn't even, be, doesn't even get created until day four? We, we won't see God make the, day, the sun until day four, so this can't be accurate because science knows better. In response, is it really so difficult to believe that there could be a light that didn't come from the sun? Is it really so hard to believe that God himself could be that very light? The Bible starts with the creation of light, but there is no sun, and it ends the same way. Consider the words of Revelation chapter 22, verse 5, where the apostle John writes, And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. In the end, there's not going to be a sun either. There doesn't need to be a sun, yet there will be light. And that light will be God himself. Further, keep something in mind here. The length of a day isn't determined by the sun. You know, here in Seattle, we don't see the sun every day, do we? No, I'd say, you know, probably seven or eight uh, months out of the year, we we don't see uh, very much sun at all. Uh, we don't need to see the sun for, uh, for there to be a day. The sun doesn't even need to exist for there to be a day because the length of a day isn't determined by the sun. The length of a day is determined by the rotation of the earth. 
The first chapter of Genesis can be uh, very confusing. It can very easily lead uh, the modern mind into confusion to leave us completely perplexed, not because the text isn't clear. It is clear, but because it's theological in nature rather than scientific in nature. And we are so accustomed to having things presented scientifically to us. That's our culture. That's not bad. That's just our culture. The modern mind, however, is programmed to elevate science above everything, testing everything against what science has discovered so that we see everything in life through some kind of scientific lens. But this chapter is not about validating our understanding of the beginning of the universe based on what science has taught us. This chapter is not about learning scientific truths. Why not? Because this is all supernatural. Science only deals with the natural realm. They don't even consider supernatural evidence. So how can this be? If, if, if it's supernatural, how can this be scientific? It's not. It's not. And we would be wise to remember that this chapter is not about science. This chapter, this book, the whole Bible is about God. We have to be very careful when we're trying to reconcile science and scripture. We are a very scientifically minded people. And so we want to understand the science of what happens in the days of creation. I get it. And yet, we must understand that the Israelites to whom this was written, they were not a scientifically minded people. They did not have a scientifically minded upbringing. They came from Egypt. Do you know what Egypt did when they, uh, the Egyptians did when they mummified people? They took their brains out. This is how scientific they were. They took their brains out because they didn't know what the brain was for. That's what the Israelites are coming from. It wasn't a scientific culture. And yet... We have to understand that while the text isn't intended to be scientific in nature, true science will always confirm exactly what Scripture says. It will always confirm what Scripture says. And we are fools if we doubt what Scripture says because it doesn't line up you know, with the latest scientific findings, which, by the way, you know, might be uh, refuted tomorrow. They might become completely obsolete by next week. We don't know. But the Word of God stands forever. As A.W. Pink noted, by the way, he's a guy that you should read, A.W. Pink. He noted, quote, If the teachings of science square with Scripture, that goes to show the former are correct. If they conflict, that proves the postulates of science are false. So the light here, where does it come from? What what is it? It clearly comes from God himself, who himself is light. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 says that God is light. The psalmist writes in Psalm 104, verses 1 and 2, he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of of life. It's from John chapter 8, verse 12. God himself, 
is the light here. God himself is light. He caused his own goodness to shine upon the face of the earth on day one. And God said, let there be light, and there there was light. And God saw that the light was good. Wait a minute, who, who said that the light was good? God said that the light was good. God says it. It's his sovereign prerogative. It's his sovereign decree. He created it, and he himself is the standard of what is good and what is not good. He's like a masterful artist who plans to paint an exquisite masterpiece. And so with one motion, he creates the first brush stroke, and he steps back from it, and he looks at it, and he says, that is perfect, that's exactly what I had in mind for this project. There's a theme that runs throughout Scripture in which light and darkness have deeply symbolic meanings. Light is good, darkness is evil. Light is good, darkness is evil. And throughout Scripture, there is the underlying reality that the light and the darkness are exclusive from one another. Why are they exclusive from one another? Because God separated them. That's what it says. God separated them from one another. And I don't know if the implications of that are made more abundantly clear than in what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, where he says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? You see the parallels here? Going backwards, fellowship is parallel with light, is parallel with the believer. The unbeliever is parallel with unrighteousness, lawlessness, and darkness. So here in our text, God separates light and darkness. They have nothing in common. They don't share common ground. And God's people are to walk in the light. God says that the light is good, and so the light is good. There's no room for negotiation here. There's no gray area. It's good. It's good because God says it's good, regardless of our opinion on the matter. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20 says, Woe to those who call uh, evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Because God and God alone is the sovereign creator of all that exists, He alone has the divine right to judge what is good and what is not good. And Scripture reserves the deepest, darkest, sternest of warnings for those who would disagree with God's sovereign right to judge and to determine what is good and what is not good. The light is good, and yet, what does humanity in our day and age, after the fall, What does humanity say about the light? What does humanity feel about the light? How do we, apart from God's saving grace, feel about the light? Jesus actually tells us point blank 
in one of the most famous passages, at least one of the most famous verses, John 3.16. In John 3.16 to 20, he says this. Listen to what he says. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness. People loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So God is light. Light is good, according to God. It's good because God is good. And our fallen, rebellious nature hates the light. The natural man who has not put saving faith in Christ, whose spiritual eyes remain blinded by rebellion toward God, loves the darkness and hates the light. He says that the darkness is good and that the light is not good, that the light is evil, thereby bringing the curse, the judgment of Isaiah 5.20 upon himself. I remember my parents one time when I was a teenager, bringing me to some, some caves out in like nowhere land in central Nevada as I was, a, I was a kid, I was a teenager. And one of the things they do as you go through these tours through the caves is they shut off all the lights to give you an idea of what complete darkness looks like just for a, a brief minute or two. And it is truly incredible and, and actually if you think about it, it's somewhat terrifying to stand in complete darkness, to be surrounded by complete darkness. If you were to be quick, as soon as those lights go off, man, you could get away with, who knows what? You could get away with just about anything because who's going to witness it? Nobody. You know, the guy in front of you, his wallet's kind of sticking out. Not trying to put any ideas in your head here. I'm just saying, when it goes dark, you can do whatever you want because the darkness conceals your works. The light exposes your deeds. The darkness conceals them. And Jesus says that people love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. And because the light will expose their wicked deeds. So looking at what we've covered so far, what what all has God done here just on the first day? He's had a busy work day, by the way. He's spoken light into existence. He has judged it or determined it to be good. He separated the light from the darkness. And this is all just in two verses. We're not even done yet. Look at verse 5 with me. It starts off saying, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So here is the first instance in Scripture of God naming something. He gives names to light and to darkness. 
This is a picture of God exercising His sovereign right. In ancient Egyptian culture, to give something a name is to establish dominion and authority over that thing. And God is letting us know here that He is sovereign over it all. He's sovereign over light. He's sovereign even over darkness. He's sovereign. He has authority, unquestioned authority over it all. Darkness has no power over Him. He names it. He owns it. It's His. He is sovereign over it. Nothing can happen in darkness that He does not allow to happen. But God's also showing us something very important here. What is the function of light? To preside over the day. That's its function here. That's its God-given function. What's the function of darkness? It presides over the night. Who has the right? This is a very important question. Who has the right to establish, to determine the function of the things which God has created? God does. Only God does. Friends, in our day and age, this is a very serious issue. Who has the right to determine how things function in the created order? Here in Western culture, we have such an independent, individualistic mindset, our, our worldview. We, we, we believe ourselves to be autonomous, striving toward and idealizing the notion of relying on nothing and no one other than ourselves. And our culture has taken this worldview to such an extreme that we struggle against and we resist the notion that we are not free to establish how things should function. Why not? Why don't we have the right to determine how things should function in the created order? Because we didn't create it. Because it's not ours. God alone has the sovereign right to determine how things are to function. And this is where sin comes in. When we at least uh, try to or cause things to function in a way that God didn't design things to function. You see, God made everything. And in the beginning, everything was good. Why was it good? Well, it was good, first of all, because God said it was good, but it was also good because things were operating in accordance with the function and the design that they were given by God. Things are good when they function the way and in the context in which God designed things to function. Let's consider an example. One of the things that God has created is language. God created language. What is the function of language in the created order. Communication, right? It's to communicate with God. It's to communicate with with others. It's to express things to one another. Let me ask you this. Is it possible to misuse language? Is it possible to use language in a way that does not honor God? 
Of course it is. Of course it is. I, I can, we, we can use language to curse God. We can use language to curse our fellow brothers who are bearing God's image. We can lie. How many in here have lied? Ever. Ever. Yeah, we, we know that whoever doesn't raise their hand is lying, right? <laughs> We've all lied, right? Why is it sinful to lie? Because it's using language in a context for which God did not design language to be used. It's good if I use language the way that God designed language to function, and it's evil if I cause language to function in a way other than God intended it. Or think about water. God gave us plenty of water, didn't he? He did. It covers the majority of the earth, and we all know uh, that they say that if you want to be healthy, you're supposed to have 64 ounces of water or whatever it is these days. So water, obviously I don't follow it, right? So water is designed to serve a very specific purpose. It has a function. It has a good function, in fact. There is unquestionably a context in which water can be said to be a good thing, but only when it's used in the way that God designed it to be used. See, God didn't design water to be inhaled, did he? What happens if you inhale? I mean, we've all done it. You know, you're drinking a glass of water, right? Or, or Coke or whatever, and, and uh, you breathe. And, oh man, it's like, it's like the world's about to end when you inhale water. And of course, you know uh, the moment that you do that, that that is not how water is to be used. And if you do it for long enough, you fill up your lungs with water and you will drown. You will die. Water is good in the context that God created it to be used in, for, him, for it to function in. It's bad when it's not used that way. Let's consider a very common question. If God created drugs, why is it wrong to use drugs? This is the answer. It has to do with function and context. God created everything. He created the marijuana plants but he designed them to be used in a very specific context. And when we use it in a context other than he created it for, than the one he created it for, it's bad. It's not good. You see, God alone determines how the created order is to function. And everything is good when it functions as God designed it to function. In the ancient Near East, the greatest thing that any mythological god could do was to establish the role or the function of a thing. There's even an Egyptian myth, an ancient Egyptian myth called the myth of Anzu, in which a god named Enlil possesses the powerful tablet of destinies, which determines how things will function and what roles they will have in the created order. And so another god named Anzu sees that Enlil has this tablet of destinies and he steals it. Why? So that he can have power over all the other gods. So that he can be the one who establishes function and order. And so every year in ancient Egypt and and subsequently in Babylon, there was a festival called Akitu in which the people believed that the gods would answer their, their, uh, their prayers, 
and fix the roles and functions of things in their favor in the coming year, thereby demonstrating the power of the gods in establishing function and roles. For the first three days of Akitu, the highest pagan priest, priest would offer contrite, fearful prayers with other priests in which they would express their fear of the unknown which was to come. Imagine if all the roles and all the functions in society in the world were suddenly reversed. Well, we better pray to the gods and make sure that that doesn't happen, was their mindset. Here in Genesis, God is demonstrating his sovereign power, the power that he alone possesses by speaking things into existence, exercising his sovereign authority over the created order by determining how things are to function. That's exactly what God is doing here in verse 5. We might miss that. The Israelites that this was written for would not have missed that. The Israelites are to see that God creates with the power of his word and that he demonstrates his sovereign authority, his dominion over all things by naming them and by establishing the function for all that he has created. And it is all very orderly and it is all good to assign a function to something in a way that was not ordered by God is to challenge God's sovereign authority as the creator, which I must add, is perhaps the most treacherous thing one can do. Verse 5 concludes with a phrase that we're going to see repeated on each of the six days of creation. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. The modern mind wants to gain scientific insight from this. And so we find the question that arises, how long was the first day? As I said at the beginning of our time today, there are a lot of ways that this question is answered. Some are certainly more valid than others, and some, I believe, are kind of stretching it. What we find when we search the scriptures is that when the Hebrew word for day, yom, is used in conjunction with a designating number, it always, let me correct that, I did that intentionally, it almost always indicates a literal 24-hour day. If you're wondering what my view is, I believe that these are literal 24-hour days. However, those who hold that Yom is referring to an age or a much longer period of time than 24 hours, they actually have a hermeneutically valid argument. They'll refer to the fact that the seventh day is clearly not a literal 24-hour day since it continues to this very day. And yet the word Yom is used in conjunction with a designating number. So does Yom plus a designating day always mean a literal 24-hour day? No, because day seven continues to today and into the future. So I believe that these are literal 24-hour days. However, while I believe that, I don't see case-closing evidence that the days of creation are necessarily, that's the key word, necessarily consecutive. 
let's say I apply this to running. Let's say, you know, on my, on my first day of running, man, I was, I was so out of breath. The second day of running, I, I was still pretty out of breath. The third day of running, I was doing better. Now, I, you, you are free to gather that I was running on consecutive days, but there may have been two or three or four days in between each day of running. So how old is the universe? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. God knows. But nobody else has case-closing evidence to say definitively either way. Let me ask you this, though. What does the age of the universe or the age of the earth matter? Ultimately, it only matters if God is trying to express this with crystal clear statements here. And if it's that important that we believe it. Ultimately, it doesn't matter how old the earth is, how old the universe is. It's not a test, it's not a litmus test of Christian orthodoxy. Here's what matters. And this is a litmus test of Christian orthodoxy. Here's what matters. The belief that God created it. The belief that he created it all. He created it with the power of his word, and by doing so, he demonstrated his sovereign authority over it. He owns it. He governs it. He even continues to sustain it. He called the light good, thereby exercising his exclusive sovereign authority to make moral judgments. And he established the way the creation was to function. If you agree with that much, I think that's what God wants us to gather here. I think that much is very important. That much has everything to do with your walk with the Lord. Friends, the day is coming when Christ who is the light of the world, will cast out those who have rejected him into what he refers to as the outer darkness. And he will bring eternal light to all of his people and to all of creation. And so if you find yourself in darkness this morning, I invite you to come into the light by placing saving faith in Jesus Christ, who took the sins of his people upon himself on Calvary, and in exchange, he imputed his perfect righteousness to us. He clothed his people in perfect righteousness. He bore the wrath of God against every sin of every person who would place saving faith in Christ. He died the death that you and I and all deserved to die. And he rose again on the third day to prove, to demonstrate, case closed, that his work of redemption was sufficient and that it was pleasing to God the Father. God's word says in 1 John, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. That is, we Misuse language, right? And do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Friends, there is a well, 
an everlasting well of God's grace that can only be found in the light, in Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 46, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. I'm intrigued by two other statements that Jesus made. First of all, he said in John chapter 9, verse 5, he said, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. But he also said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16, he said, you, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. How is Christ the light of the world, and yet we're also the light of the world? Because he lives in us and we live in him. Paul understood the importance of this principle, and thus he offered this word of instruction to the church in Ephesus. He said this, At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Do you understand what God is telling us through his word here? He's saying that his people have a specific function. They have a very specific purpose, a role by which they are to operate within the created order. There's a purpose for God having called us into his marvelous light, as uh, as Peter says. And that is, that purpose is to do good works and bring glory to God. The God who spoke light into existence and gave light its function has given His people a function to bring the gospel message to the ends of the earth. And there is no greater good, there is no better work than you or I can commit ourselves to doing than this. A significant part of our purpose, friends, is to share the good news of forgiveness in Christ Jesus, reconciliation with God, to share that message with others, to be a light in the darkness. As we close this morning, I ask two things. First of all, seriously, we check yourself. Check yourself. Can you honestly say, that you're walking in the light? If your answer is yes, praise the Lord. If your answer is no or maybe, please, please, repent. Repent and look to Christ. Believe in him and act in accordance with that belief. Please don't leave here this morning unless you are sure that you are walking in the light, living your life in humble obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ in accordance with the function and the purpose that he has given you. And secondly, will you please pray for and prayerfully consider who you might share the good news of the gospel with. Will you pray about how you can be a light 
in darkness, what that means in the context of your daily life. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you clearly reveal in your word to us. That you are God. That you are sovereign. That nothing is impossible for you. And so, Lord, as we consider these truths, may our hearts be filled with awe and wonder at what a great God you are. The God who spoke it all into existence would love us so much that he would create a way to reconcile fallen man to himself. What an unfathomable mystery, Lord. We thank you for it. We thank you for being the light and for bringing us into the light, your light. Teach us, Lord, to be a people who live and walk in the light, that you would be glorified in our lives. We pray this in Christ's holy name, for his sake, for his glory. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.